Welcome to the Insiders Insights Podcast, where we share with you the thoughts of the individuals who are working for projects that are changing the world. Thank you to our sponsor, Credit Coin, the building blocks of trust. For more details, please visit the show notes below. Welcome to Off Chain Presents Insiders Insight. Today, I have a very good friend of mine, Wardog, who you may know from Twitter, and he's going to share some insights on today's current market situations. But before we begin, Wardog, why don't you just share with our audience your background into crypto and how you got into it. Hey Sean, yeah, good to be here guys. It's, um, I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, so it's good to finally get it underway. Um, my crypto journey, we started in 2016, um, so I've been around the traps for quite a while now. Yeah, previously, I'd focused my trading investing in like Forex and commodities and some equity stuff. Um, however, the, the, the interest of blockchain technology brought me into this space pretty quickly and um, as any trader will tell you, volatile markets are uh, much more attractive than, um, than some of the traditional stuff were global. So that's initially what got me over. Um, the innovation around blockchain technology took me down the rabbit hole, um, as I'm sure it did for most of the way. So I guess that journey started off with just a purely investment based in trading, which then ended up uh, in mid-2017 taking me into the venture space. And I started a small venture capital firm. They're supporting like early Web3 startups, um, some more successful protocols uh, that are still operating today. It's really good that we had that support, but and that was uh, my core focus for the first few years up until 2021, where it started to get heavily congested in the VC space. And it was really, uh, it, it came super competitive and there wasn't a whole lot of value being added around the, around the board. It was really just like a competition for uh, branding and money and that kind of thing. And we kind of bowed out of that. Um, in the interim, I... Uh, I joined a capital, uh, sorry, a, a hedge fund uh, firm operating in the digital asset space. Um, I joined them, I think, 18 months ago. So I was managing primarily market neutral liquidity provision DeFi. Uh, at the peak, that fund was sitting at 250 million uh, in my portfolio, with the overall fund sitting under just under half a billion. Um, so I'm still managing that today. Um, I continue to manage that. Managing it's, it's not actually, a, it's a, not exactly an easy task in these markets as, as most people will realize the, um, the contagion effect that's rippled through DeFi specifically has been fairly problematic. Um, that's where my core focus is at the moment. So, um, primarily a capital manager in the DeFi space. How, how transferable were the skills from your FX and commodities days to the crypto days? And did you make the same amount of money? when you were just trading those other markets or was there just something fundamentally different about the crypto markets that forced you to jump ship? Yeah, nowhere near the same money. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> it's a much easier market to capitalize. Um, there's a lot of nuances in crypto. Why is it easier? Um, Why is it easier? Is it just the inefficiencies? There's a lot of inefficiencies, yeah. But there's also um, the, I guess, the, the, the way that you harvest alpha in this market, um, the inefficiencies, don't get me wrong, are enormous and there's still a lot of opportunity there because there's a lot, not a lot of traditional money has moved in here and it's still fairly nascent, um, right? In a lot of those kind of niche areas but the ability to understand this tech and understand like the flywheel economics is something that is unique to crypto and um, managing those flywheels in illiquid markets can account for some exponential upside right and it's uh, much harder to quantify than it is in traditional markets because it's not like a set model right whereas uh, commodities and equity market uh, there's a, definitely there's a lot of parallels you can draw 
to what happens like with a token or a tokenomic, etc. Um, there's a lot of nuances that aren't accounted for. That's a, like, a lot of what I spent 2018 doing is building the investment model around tokenomics and flywheels. Uh, there's a big focus around utility um, in that year, like 2018. A lot of people were focused on utility and um, cash flow models. And it was it, honestly, it was a bit more relatable for traditional markets, but it still has a lot of those uh, nuances that enabled someone with uh, the ability to extrapolate out an economic flywheel um, to give a reasonable forecast of, of a token of the price act. So I think it's honestly, it's just because there's not a lot of models built out for this. So the space is still fairly like, it's still fairly fluid in the way that people interpret value and um, how someone interprets uh, how a particular um, token model may play out uh, in regards to price act. Well, uh, why did you not work in TradFi? Because you sound like you've always had an interest in markets and it's just, it's a little bit strange that you, you've only done it on the side but you're like so good at it dude <laughs> yeah thanks man it, it, it's funny like um because i find it so enjoyable I, I, I guess like um i had seen what people say like um uh, i won't like dox myself too much but i like was fairly uh influential in like uh fitness community stuff um early days of Instagram and that kind of thing but I never took on like the personal training side of things so I never really wanted to do it because it took the fun out of it and that's not why I did it right and I always had the same kind of view on financial markets like I never really um, necessarily wanted to go full time in finance because I really enjoyed doing it in my spare time that probably sounds weird but like it was more like of an enjoyable hobby to me. I didn't want to go in. Um, it just so happens that I found a team of people that I was confident that wouldn't take the uh, the enjoyment out of it and that's where I am today but that's really the primary reason. Right? I didn't want to cross the world over. It sounds odd to say that like finance is your downtime and it's super boring to so many people, <laughs> but it's like I, I love the game theory um, and I find it super enjoyable. So it was really just wanting to uh, like isolate my professional career and what I do for enjoyment away from each other. I think I can relate to that because I used to work in TradFi and I, I, I studied economics um, during undergrad and only went into TradFi because everyone else around me at my university were. And I also did my CFA and I've always enjoyed the theoretical part of uh, finance and trying to understand narratives and how investors think. But working in TradFi definitely killed my love for finance. And in fact, I basically took a sabbatical in 2017 because I just couldn't take it anymore. And it's really funny because now that I'm in crypto and now that I've found crypto, I find myself going back into, you know, trying to understand everything I learned whilst I was working in TradFi. Because it's actually really useful because the crypto industry is so in its infancy that everything that you've learned from TradFi, you can actually just bring it into the crypto space and make it more formal and, and probably, you know, a bit more efficient. But, you know, at the time when I was working for a TradFi company, I would have never thought this because, uh, you know, I just hated it so much. <laughs> mm. I think it's, a, it's one thing to say, like, you... Like if you take like the analogy of let's say solving a puzzle, um, for example, and if you are solving the puzzle in your spare time, you get enjoyment out of that. It, it's a it's a good hobby, right? And it's challenging, and you you test your limitations on things, and it, it forces you to understand. But it's an enjoyable experience, right? But if you introduce a stopwatch into the puzzle, then all of a sudden it's completely different, right? And you like the incentive design is different. There's pressure. Um, yeah, there's an expectation. Um, that forces you to kind of execute diligently with the time you have. 
And I think that correlates well to if you're doing it for a job, right? And if you're in trade markets and someone is, you have that, obviously there's a lot of external pressure from investors and partners, especially in that business that are an overlay that kind of take um, the fun of the puzzle away because there is all those externalities that typically if you're doing it for enjoyment, you don't have there, right? So it's hard to enjoy that kind of journey of discovery and philosophy around economics and what this new technology means later on. Um, so I think that's probably um, a, a part of that, uh, how that, that journey is. Well, let's start getting into the meat of the podcast. What is your outlook on the markets? I mean, as of this recording, tomorrow's the merge. Well, it should be tomorrow. Do you expect any significant impact on prices post-merge? Um, yeah, I guess, you know, my view from like, uh, I've been very much risk off since uh, December last year. Um, just a, another key indicator flag on the macro side for me that I wasn't comfortable continuing to hit any direction. Um, and that's like for my own personal investment. It's not like the fund that I manage is always, uh, that goes neutral. Um, for that reason, I don't have much exposure in the market. I know we, we touch base, uh, now and then, showing around where, like where I'm seeing markets going. I, um, I really struggle with the, the ability for the narrative to outpace macro at the moment. I think this week, uh, was probably the worst possible week that the merge could have been placed. Um, cause we always had a CPI print, right? Uh, looming. So it, I feel like the numbers that have dropped in the last 24 hours have significantly dampened like, the ability for, um, some price action leading up to the merge. And we've seen that reflect today, actually, in the last 24 hours. But like, I mean, it was always like, this week is stacked with things that are happening, right? Like a big macro week, um, and a huge crypto week. And that things, in order to get like maximum value extraction, planning them around in the same week, because vision is problematic at best. Like in traditional markets, I would never trade events. Just didn't like the uncertainty. Um, it's just, and it messes with a bunch of models. Um, so I always tiered, like, I tended to stay away from events. And this is kind of similar. I think like, like the merge itself, obviously, like the, the economic benefits for the network are fantastic. Um, I'm a massive ETH supporter, um, and I, I, I don't obviously it's not going anywhere. Um, and the merge is fantastic for those operations and what it means moving forward. And obviously, there's a lot of ESG pressure that's coming on the crypto markets, and it alleviates a ton of that. So it's always good to like smooth out that regulatory side for a clear path for the development to push forward. Uh, as far as additional price action, once it happens, uh, in my experience, uh, six years of crypto, um, it's rare to see an event have positive price action immediately post. I think even if you reflect to halvenings, uh, for example, it's not like the price doesn't pump the day the halvening happens, right? We have uh, a period of consolidation and then uh, there's a network effect that happens uh, based on the new issuance rate and it takes off. So long-term, fantastically um, bullish on the economic design and incentive design for Ethereum. Uh, I think the core dev team has done such a great job uh, in getting us to this position. And I've no doubt that this is the way uh, forward. And I think it is the uh, most scalable and efficient way forward, uh, efficient from a number of different factors that we can dive into. Um, but I don't think any immediate price action that is substantial will follow that can outweigh the current macro climate. What do you think about a possible POW chain forking off? I've been following uh, the code a fair bit as well in my spare time. Um, and I've been following along closely with the development of the client side um, on FKW, and I've been fairly disappointed with the execution. Um, if I'm honest, I think there's already a, like a number of whole Ethereum ecosystems that have said that they publicly that they won't be supported, uh, which creates some challenges for that to execute well. Um, DeFi is tough with that chain link. Um, that's probably the, the elephant in the room. Um, I, I would have expected a lot of the GitHub to be uh, further along in development than what it is today. Although yesterday, I believe 
um, the EPOW team put out a statement that said that they'll be uh, the actual fork will be X amount of blocks ahead um, of the actual merge, so it will be post merge, um, which will buy them a little bit of extra time to get stuff together. Um, but there's even like contention over the chain IDs and that not being updated in the GitHub, and then sharing one with the um, hash. Um, smart Bitcoin cash chain and stuff it makes it like it doesn't really show a high level of diligence around execution which is really neat to sustain this kind of thing um, I feel like that value accrual will probably um, for those people that are passionate enough about proof of work will flow to Ethereum Classic and we'll see like a richer development there um, I can't see personally a long term uh, thesis where EPOW becomes something given the um, but the, the social layer of Ethereum is it, um, in my opinion is one of its strongest points and if you take away the social layer of Ethereum it's um, it might as well just be a, a regular EVM fork, though, right? Like, why? What's the value proposition, really? Um, other than a commitment to the like the like proof of work, but Ethereum Classic has that, uh, like has that aspect already. So I'm not sure where it fits in the overall picture for longevity. Um, if it does get off the ground and does launch, and there's enough uh, there's enough movement around it, it will be a little bit chaotic, no doubt. Um, and that, those kind of events are always uh, interesting to navigate in this space, uh, especially from those people that are ahead of the curve. Uh, typically, uh, a few people that have really uh, proficient execution in these uh, matters that profit the most. Um, look at someone like uh, some of the lead uh, engineers behind some of the MEV um, protocols that happen on uh, on mainnet now. And those are the type of uh, players that I expect to profit greatly um, from that fork and extracting the maximum value in a short period of time. But I think from the average retail investor, probably uh, going to be a tough one to navigate to realize anything. I, li- I like the unbiased take on the fork because in my personal opinion, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> Just, uh, I mean, uh, I, if it does happen, it's going to be worth nothing. And uh, I, I just don't think they're going to have enough people to rally behind it. And my, my advice to miners, and this is not financial advice, but just like what you said, I think you need, you should just support ETH Classic. I just don't see the point of an ETH POW chain. Yeah, it's really, I think it's like, you know, digital asset space is one of, uh, there's a lot of opportunity for uh, momentum and for value extraction. And I think at the right place and the right time, um, it would have, there'd be enough incentive to benefit a very few amount of people if they can get the momentum behind it. But it's, uh, it's such a, um, like a social confirmation game here. Like, and if you don't have the, the, that social layer supporting for whatever means it happens to be, whether it's got big VC backers, like some of the other competitive chains to Ethereum, I'm not sure where the support comes from. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, right? Uh, definitely. So do you think that we're basically range bound from now until say the next halving to about maybe like ETH mid three figures to 2000 and maybe mm. Bitcoin in like the mid teens? I mean, maybe the mid teens is the, the lowest we'll go to, but like in the 20Ks? Do you think that's what you're seeing at the moment? Crab markets? Look, I um, if you jump on my Twitter, you'll see like the charting that I forecasted in December to actually range in this spot right here where we're announced in my little uh, accumulation box. Um, that was before a lot of macroeconomic stuff did change. So my forecast has changed a fair bit since then. Um, that initial forecast in December was predicated um, without the issues we're having in Eastern Europe at the moment. Uh, impacting the supply chain from a like 
um, the inflationary standpoint of the, like the CPI is now underpinned by a supply problem and not a debasement problem that we were having previous to everything happening uh, with the energy crisis. So that kind of stuff shifted a little bit. I, I think like this like high level 20k Bitcoin is a good price, right? Because I, I say this to um, people that are looking to enter the markets, etc. When they see an opportunity, um, it all depends on your time horizon, right? Like if you're looking to realize uh, uh, price accrual from Bitcoin right now and extraction profits from the price action in a short term time frame, if you're looking at like one to three months, you're probably not in a great spot to do it here. It just doesn't really add up. But if you're looking to invest in Bitcoin for the next uh, five years or the next four years, 20k. 15k probably doesn't really matter that deviation in price isn't going to make a difference to like the end the end game for you and, and if that is what the time horizon you're looking at like if you bought uh, a bunch of bitcoin now so you bought a bitcoin and said i'm not going to look at this for four years you're not going to care if you didn't get a 15k right but if you're looking at these charts every day and you can't stomach a drawdown of like another 25 to you know 35 percent from this point here then that's a different approach as like as far as like how low we do go um i don't see 12k out of the picture for Bitcoin. That's where I see like the next decent level of support at a 10 to 12k range. Um, just historically, um, I've got a working thesis around the monetary supply um, from 2020 uh, as it correlates to core equities and stuff that seem to play out in traditional markets that I would expect to parallel in crypto as well. Um, it is difficult to think of what the catalyst is to draw it down, but there's any number of things at any time. Um, right? There's a number of like key global issues at the moment that you markets react very uh, violently to, and the last 24 hours are a really good example. It was only a slight miss right, on the, the forecasting um, of the CPI. Um, but I think it's interesting that it, the marks are saying that it wasn't expected. Um, however, I, I would not be surprised to see those brought out. That I, like a crab to a breakdown and then potentially a retracement back to mean and then cruise through to the next um, to the next halving. But there's a number of other key catalysts, right? Like we go down the economics and emerge, um, and how that plays into like supply demand curves, because that is a super interesting one. So it may over the next few months post merge start to gain that traction on the new economic model that drives its uh, appreciation here, like outside of its correlation to Bitcoin. Um, and then potentially lead alts, um, which would be different to what we typically see after a retracement. We usually have Bitcoin lead the market back up, and then the economic model in ETH poses a different age. So there's a number of moving parts, right? And it, that's the hardest thing to forecast out, not only in our crypto, but in macroeconomically as well. But I think for the long term, these prices are a, a good like DCA spot in my opinion. But the um, the potential for downside is certainly still there. We're definitely not out of the wood. I can't I can't imagine anyone saying that with confidence. You know what I'm wondering right now is are the same alts that led the last bull market are going to be the same ones that lead this one. So we're looking at mm. Solana, BNB, Avalanche, uh, Phantom, to some extent. I I realized that in the previous bull cycles. Apart from maybe Tron, because, you know, you have to say what Justin has done is pretty remarkable in terms of, you know, making sure that Tron has super high TVL, despite not having that many dApps on. Uh, you look at the the other projects, your Zillicas, your Neos, your Icon, and what about the other EVM chains, your Tezos and your EOS? They're nowhere to be found. Uh, I mean, yeah, they still rank quite highly on uh, CoinGecko, but in terms of height, in terms of people talking about development on that chain, they're not there. So I, I just wonder if, you know, the chains from this cycle will still be there. I have a feeling they will be. 
I just think that the space right now is so different to the space that came before it. Um, and I, I just, I just, I, I can't really see new mainnets, you know, coming up and actually making a dent. I know Aptos and Surya, they have got a lot of hype right now and, and previously near did as well. But, you know, I, I just don't see it, to be honest. Yeah, I, you're, you're right, particularly in the sense that the in 2017, it, nothing, there was no DeFi, right? We, there was nothing to do on chain. Like, if the, the price action was literally all you could do, you couldn't try to harvest a lot from, like, operating on chain or trying to do something nuanced or, you know, liquidity farm between two protocols or arbitrage between bridges. So there's a, just a, there's a lot more to do. Um, so I don't think in that, like that activity translates to fees, which translate to some value accrual in the chains, um, throughout the, you know, a, a few of the chains, but that, that kind of, those mechanics weren't really present in 2017, which I think led to a lot of those, um, challenges or those things that are really taking off like me. Uh, the new emergence in the market are always going to be, um, somewhat like particularly L1s, like is how people are valuing, uh, projects in space right now is their, they'll benchmark them against a successful protocol, say if we can get 50% of the size of Ethereum, this is a TVL and therefore this is our value. which is a bit of a, um, <laughs> it's a bit of a uh, false equivalency. And that's because you don't, you're not comparing social layers, um, network effect, time in production, uptime, all those kind of things don't come into those models ever. For all the depths that I've looked at, they don't, that's not anything that's really um, ever really considered. A, a lot of the, the adoption is pushed by grants and the chain is only really like as far as adoption and transaction throughput goes, that kind of stuff is very much predicated on uh, devs, right? And a lot of that funding comes from uh, what they're raising in those seed rounds early. You see with Sui and Aptos, those had quite big seed rounds in a market that was very bullish and people were happy to allocate liquidity. So no doubt the reward mining programs will attract developers to the space, but whether they sustain longevity is another story. That is, like, I guess, the L1 narrative uh from the last few years was around that and it was very much fueled by liquidity mining and that uh, mercenary liquidity moving around different chains to capture value and protocols supporting developers with grants keep them active and i think that's always going to be like one of the key um indicators of success is how sticky the ecosystem is once the rewards dry up um and you'll see that like Polygon really led that incentive design uh, in the last run and development has really dried up there and shifted to not, not on like on the core team of Polygon is super far ahead of their development. That's no, I, I mean, as far as like um, external developers building applications um, on the like on the chain is going to bring a new market entrance or whatever into participating to that network is very thin compared to where you're seeing the incentives lie everywhere else and that's literally just like the base incentives right um, so I think like those emerging chains like Siri and Aptos will get uh, they'll get some traction but uh, whether it's transient is the stuff that uh, we need to flesh out over time and whether they can execute and look after their environment well enough to support it. Um, yeah, so hopefully that, that gives you my, my perspective on, on that side of things. Um, just lastly, before we move on to the final part of the podcast, I'm been trying to figure out my long-term thesis on crypto to see how the space is going to develop. And I think there are a few areas where I'm, I'm super interested in. I think the first area is I think that traditional finance in, financial instruments will get moved on to uh, be supported by blockchain officially because you know right now if you want to buy or sell a stock you need to wait for the for the markets to open and close and they don't trade for 24 hours and it's just ridiculous right I mean 
crypto trades 24-7 and none of these other markets do because the technology is just not there for those markets to trade 24-7 and on crypto rails they are so i reckon that's going to be a major driver in the adoption of crypto the second thing is i believe that um, we're going to start seeing capitalism get revamped because you know, the problem with equities and shares is that the value accrual only goes towards them whereas if you're a stakeholder you don't get any of the upside whereas with crypto i think the economics you can design behind the token means that you can give all stakeholders um, a benefit from supporting the project and therefore it just becomes a much fairer place to to you know in terms of its distribution of value it just it's a bit fairer and i think that's going to be good for capitalism and therefore good for for blockchain and then finally um, we had a podcast with sam who is a 24 year old founder of zebec which is a like payment streaming protocol built on top of solana but i think they're looking to go multi-chain and he said something really interesting, which is that he, the way he sees uh, the next development of crypto is that he believes that traditional Web2 infrastructure needs to be moved onto crypto rails because that's going to bring increasing efficiencies upon um, members who are sharing development in the space because they can then just tack on the combined development of whatever database instead of building their own database and that's going to fill up the block space on these blockchains which is ultimately needed to get you know the value of these blockchains to grow uh, i just wanted to know what are your thoughts about how we're going to see value getting accrued in the blockchain space and do you agree with my thesis or do you think there are other aspects to look out for. Yeah, I, I do I agree with a number of the points you made. Um, I think like on the second point, um, as far as the ability to enhance like the um, the benefits for investors from like traditional equity models, um, I think I think that's a hard breakaway. Um, simply because like the you know I say this to a lot of people when we talk about DeFi and what's the what's the difference between traditional finance and decentralized finance and it's um it's not always the it's, I mean like all those designs that they're building now they're not new right all these products that are being built there's, there's some unique stuff like perp um, of course like a new product built by this market due to like the time the traders like the um, the 24 hour time um, that we have to trade like every single day in these products the perps are invented off the back of that requirement but like we're really just re recreating stuff on fast forward and we're like really i mean breaking things on fast forward that have got a parallel to traditional finance um i think you'll still see even in like DeFi now and in crypto you see some economic models that mirror a lot more like equities and they're built that way in order to like prioritize the future development of the protocol or the what you have in, in parallel or the, the business company ahead of the investors to ensure like proliferation of what, what they're doing so I think that is like I think it's a fine line where people are trying to find the right value accrual even you know Uniswap and the fee sharing Obviously, there's some uh, regulatory factors that come uh, into that equation as well. But, you know, that protocol doesn't distribute fees, right, to any LPs and it's still the biggest debt. Um, so it's, um, I, I agree with what you're saying, um, but I think it's like we're just really trying to figure out what is the most optimal strategy um, for doing that. Um, and I think that kind of stuff will evolve over time and hopefully like the equity stuff will follow. But I think there'll always be space for how some of those traditional equities are set up right now. Like Amazon's a good example right now. Like it's obviously a huge business. It doesn't pay out dividend, right? So that and that really doesn't, as the grand scheme of things and what the measure of success is for that business, 
isn't predicated on sharing value to investors like that. Um, so I think there's like there's some paces for and, and against for like taking on more of the distributed model, um, that side of thing. Um, on the the final point around the um, bringing those payment rails and integrating across, I think that does happen, but I don't think it happens um, the way that most people think it's going to play out. I think a lot of this, like the institutional adoption happens on private chains that are KYC, right? I don't think like, I know there's a number of, uh, of the L1s at the moment that are in discussions with launching KYC chains strictly for institutional capital. And that really segments out a lot of the composability that we love in DeFi, right? But it's uh, anything like all the movements in the regulatory space, particularly around Tornado Cash and uh, how those sanctions uh, are applying to wallet addresses and the risk that poses to someone that's not necessarily um, happy with someone's ability to exclude them from a system like that, that crossover between traditional finance and what we typically would expect to see in DeFi at the moment is a difficult bridge. To, so I think there's still a ton of work to be done there. Uh, I think that those kind of activities like the traditional money, any kind of reasonable size that you can draw a parallel to traditional markets will be on chains that have no risk of um, of crossing over with assets or with um, any users in a permissionless way that is not already pre-programmed. It would just be like, I can't see like a world where um, any responsible traditional finance regulatory body thinks that's okay. Um to be deposited in the compound pool with a, a whole heap of size from, like, let's say, a, a bank um, that's commingling in assets that are sanctioned from somewhere, right? From sanctioned for XYZ because they engaged in Y protocol. I think it's just more likely and, like, a, a clearer path to adoption or, like, those kind of on-chain benefits you spoke about, particularly, like, around settlement and the, like, uh, the unique operational functions of decentralized finance that can easily be captured through um, them putting up these um, different moats around ensuring regulatory compliance. So I think that's the the most likely path forward. Not Definitely not my optimal. I prefer liquidity being curved personally, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I, I just think it's a, a big bridge to cross when there's a reasonable solution from the regulatory side to do that. So I think the money does come in. I just don't think it comes in a way that most people are expecting it to come in, have access to and interact with in any substantial way w- without KYC, of course, and AML and following those guidelines. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So before we get you to leave, I would just want to know, um, because this is called the off-chain podcast, what do you do in your off time? So, I mean, I guess Previously, it would be trading markets. You do that professionally now. So what exactly do you do when you're not working? Uh, yeah, not working is funny in the 24-hour markets, mate. So I'm not sure that uh, that happens too often. Um, honestly, mate, when I'm not uh, trading or like monitoring my portfolio and migrating positions, I'm probably coding something. Um, I'm personally building a few different DeFi protocols and with some partners as well. Um, some are decentralized finance focused. Uh, I do some advisory for a few different protocols as well in the GameFi space. Um, and also working on my own GameFi project as well, not for like financial side, but just really enjoyment um, side of things. Um, so I spend a lot of my spare time learning more about this stuff to enhance those. But in my actual downtime, uh, I probably I'll probably be at the beach having a surf, mate. That's um, my morning ritual typically is go out and take in the uh, sunrise on the board and catch a few waves and come back and do the finance thing through the day and John, mate. So, but honestly, mate, if I'm honestly probably 18 hours of my days dedicated to these markets now. So, but 
not out of like the necessity too, but simply because I do just love the space. Dude, so you still find time to surf, even though you're basically glued to your screen. It's the only downtime you can have, mate. Set, set the stop loss and just uh, get in the water. Now you gotta you yeah. gotta have that downtime somewhere. But like that that time I have is so um, minimal. Like I try to set it like an hour or two aside every day, and then there's like it's through one means or the other working in the. In the... What about your sleep? <laughs> Don't sleep, bro. Um, really, really. <laughs> uh, yeah. That that yeah. that is interesting. I sleep more now than what I did a year ago. I tell you that. Um, it's interesting, mate. The time zone that I'm in is not super um, favorable to a lot of on-chain activity. Um, so that does create some challenges and messes up uh, the sleep schedule a little bit. Like statistically, uh, protocol exploit um, happened in like based on my time zone will happen at two to three a.m. in the morning. There's a weird concentration time around this spot for DeFi protocol exploits. So it um I've got a little bit of like the built prediction models that are based on uh, all that historical data and aggregate uh, these certain data points that I use for investing. And uh yeah, I've got a little bit of PTSD for my own data. I think so. I'm <laughs> like waking up at two to three a.m. check those kind of markets. It's all worthwhile, mate. I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, dude. We need to do a live session with off chain and you could just show off some some slides because I think you're so ahead in the game thinking about this shit I haven't heard anybody building models and having such a deep insight on and such a complete insight on how the markets are we we, we got to do this again uh, hopefully maybe in three months or four months time after the merge has happened and and we can get a feel about where the markets are for the new year I think that would be really excellent and maybe we do it live and you have some slides to show if you if you'd like to do that because that would be super helpful too yeah sure mate no worries happy to got a i've got a number of different models that i think you have a look at um yeah mate but uh yeah more than happy to jump on i've enjoyed the chat today awesome awesome thank you so much man um it's been a pleasure as always I, I tell people who are close to me that you're like my unofficial master when it comes to these markets. I've learned so much since getting to know you and uh, it's it's always been such an honor of mine to have known you because I just think that the insights you're bringing to the game are second to none, man. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, mate. Always enjoy our chat. Always keen. Okay. All right. Um, that's, that's all we have for this episode. Uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you all next episode. Bye, guys. The Inside This Insight podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest of this podcast does not necessarily reflect any views of our sponsors.